Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 4 as we go through the book of Romans? We're on chapter 4, verse 9 this week. And this is the word of God, which is eternally true. Romans chapter 4, beginning with verse 9. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, we come before you confessing our sins, but also confessing our faith in the precious blood of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have not left us in ignorance, but have recorded your words in this book. And now we pray as we study this text from your Apostle Paul, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text begins with the Apostle Paul asking a question. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? Well, this assumes that we know what blessing he's referring to, but because we go through a text, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, some here weren't here last week when we studied what came before, so I want to repeat that. When he asks about this blessing, he's referring before to the blessing, and there are four of them. The blessings are, number one, he declares a blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from work. So that's the first blessing. God has credited somebody with something that's external to them, that's righteousness, and then he fences it off apart from works. So that's the blessing of having righteousness credited to us apart from works, then second, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. The third is, blessed are those whose sins have been covered. And the fourth is, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And so these are the four blessings, God crediting righteousness to a man apart from works, God forgiving his lawless deeds, God covering his sins, and God not taking his sins into account. And all of these are combined into singular blessing, all right? And the Apostle Paul asks, is this blessing then 
on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? Now, why this question? Well, the most obvious answer is that the New Testament has a pervasive theme of the Apostle Paul fighting for the inclusion of Gentiles, and specifically uncircumcised Gentiles. Remember that proselytes weren't considered fully Jewish until they had themselves circumcised. And this view of Gentiles continued into the Christian church of the New Testament through the Jews. Circumcision is the removal of the man's foreskin, and both Greeks and Romans considered it repulsive. Okay? It was disgusting, Greeks and Romans alike. Back then, it was common for men, especially well-bred men, to be naked in certain situations. In the gym, for instance, where typically they'd spend an hour and a day, an hour a day exercising. They would do it without clothes on. And no man wanted to appear in the gym without his foreskin. It was shameful. It required the Jews to demonstrate their covenant with God before other men doing so in the most intimate way. This is what it meant to be Jewish. Feel it. This is what it meant to be Jewish. There were Gentile God-fearers who had not been circumcised, but from the beginning of the Christian church, the Jewish converts to Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, brought their weight to bear against baptism being the only sacrament initiating new believers into the Christian church. As Jesus had said to the Samaritan woman at the well, salvation is of the Jews. As everyone knew, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Jesus had been promised in the Old Testament by the Jewish prophets. He was the fulfillment of Jewish prophecies. It was in the Jewish holy book those prophecies were recorded. The Old Testament, as we call it today. To the Jews, being in covenant with God and being a Jew were synonymous. And being a male Jew and being in covenant with God were synonymous with being circumcised. So as many Jewish Christians saw it in New Testament times, if a man put his faith in Jesus... He needed to be baptized, yes, Jesus had commanded baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He needed to be baptized, yes. Jesus had commanded it, but this man also had to be circumcised because Christians were Jewish, really. They were the continuity of the Old Testament. You were not fully a Jew if you were a man until you were circumcised. There's a reason this word circumcision appears 12 times in just the five verses we're reading. I'm not making this up. It's Paul. I've been waiting my whole life to say that. You know, don't you just want to blame things on Paul? You know, that Paul, he's the one that did it. And so as we said earlier, circumcision was a battle in the New Testament church, and we can see that battle all through the New Testament with it being at its most intense in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. 
There that battle is heated and prolonged as the Apostle Paul fights for the freedom in Christ to be a Gentile and a Christian without having to be marked by the Jewish sign of circumcision. But as is as in his letter to the Galatians, so here, the battle is not simply whether or not Gentile believers had to be marked with the sign of the old Jewish covenant. That was not the only nature of this battle. But more, the battle was over the nature and purpose of that sign in the old Jewish covenant. In the Old Testament among the Jews, what did circumcision mean? Why was it done And what connection did it have to a man's salvation? And so again, the Apostle Paul has been speaking of God covering over our sins and what a blessing it is for the man's sins to be forgiven. And he's been quoting two of the highest fathers and authorities of the Jews. He's been quoting Father Abraham and he's been quoting King David. And so now the Apostle Paul doubles down on Father Abraham. And here's his question again. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. All right. Now stop a second and think about ethnic identity. Try to get in tune with your inner selfish. Okay? Try to see yourself as you are. Try to read this conflict in terms of your own heart. We hold on to our ethnic identities tightly, don't we? Inside, all men and women are selfish to the core. To the core of our familial identity, our ethnic identity, and our religious identity. In fact, we all make it a habit to see the three is one. A man's family and ethnicity or race and his religion blend or blurred into one. Again, what is it to be a son of Father Abraham other than to be a Jew? And what is it to be a Jew other than to worship the Jewish God, Yahweh? And what is it to worship Yahweh other than to be circumcised? They're inseparable from a Jew's identity. And yet here the Apostle Paul is daring to pull them apart by what's seemingly an innocuous question. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised? I mean, it doesn't seem like a threatening question, you know, right? But that's because we're not Jews. What he's asking is, is the blessing of forgiveness something that is only for the Jews, or is it for Gentiles? Okay? And he calls in a proof text. The proof text is from Genesis 15. And the proof text is, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. You remember verse 5 of Genesis 15 God took Abram outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he, God, said to Abraham, so shall your descendants be, the number of the stars in the sky. And then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord. And he, God, reckoned it to Abraham as righteousness. Genesis 15, 
5 to 7. Now, this is a quandary, isn't it? We have a problem here. The Apostle Paul has put the point directly to them, and they are now faced with a choice. Naturally, the sinful heart of man tends to familial and ethnic or racial and religious, or as writers would put it, ethno-religious pride. And so the proud Jewish man and woman would want to answer the Apostle Paul's question by declaring that this blessing of the forgiveness of sins was on the children of Father Abraham, Jews, circumcised only. But then again, the Apostle Paul follows the question immediately with a quotation of their first book, written by their lawgiver Moses at the beginning of the Pentateuch, in which he declares that Abraham had believed God's covenant promise of many descendants and that God had reckoned, God had accounted this belief of Abraham as righteousness, that he believed in the Lord. Think through the Old Testament and think through all the ways that God marked the Jews as his own. They refer to circumcision as the first obedience, but there were many that came after it. Just think about what it meant to be under all the dietary restrictions. Yesterday I was in a discussion online where somebody was talking about how sexuality is something that God gives us as males and females and that we should obey it. You know, we shouldn't try to switch, do the old switcheroo. You know, we should just sort of, you know, obey your body, right? And immediately, in the discussion, what gets trotted out? Well, do you eat shellfish? Well, as a matter of fact, yes. I, I, as a matter of fact, last night I went and I bought three packages of crab cakes. And I love shrimp. <laughs> now, why are they saying that? Well, because this, this identified the Jews. You know, he said, do you eat pork too? You know, I don't know if I eat pork. Well, not so much anymore. They've, most of the pork I get has no fat. I don't like pork without fat. You know, I just don't. Got a pork man over here. Um... Every single thing they did was carefully regulated to mark them separate from the Canaanites. Everything. The food, how the food was prepared, what they did on the Sabbath. Their the fact that they couldn't wear blended fibers, blended cloth. Everything marked them off as separate, right? You're all with me. But that separate was not just, you know, we're not... Uh, Mexican or Canadian were American. That separate was, we are gods. Every single thing they did marked them off as gods, belonging to God. Okay? And so now, all of a sudden, here comes the Messiah. He's not a king. He doesn't whoop up on the Romans. And seemingly, all of the things that gave them distinction... All the things that distinguish them from the dirty goyim, the Gentiles, are thrown out, including the first obedience of circumcision. And it's like, I feel the earth move under my feet. I feel the sky tumbling down. Everything that gave them their identity and hope of eternal life was gone. 
except what had been originally said, which was Abram believed in the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, why wasn't that sufficient for them? You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's the crown jewel, right? That's the only thing worth having. Why was that not sufficient? Well, the reason is that the sinful heart of man is always looking to external rites and ceremonies for his salvation. Our hearts are always wanting to avoid our hearts and deal with our bodies. We are perpetually wanting to forget about the sin in our hearts and cover it over with rites and ceremonies. And so the Jews had taken what was a sign and seal of a preceding faith of Abraham, that faith being credited to him as circumcision was a sign and seal of what had already happened. He had had faith and God had credit. And they had thrown out the faith and thrown out the belief in the Lord, and they were clinging to the ceremony, which had no meaning outside of faith. And this is who we are. We don't want to deal with our hearts. I don't want to deal with my heart. I grew up with a dad that would regularly say to us in his home, Tim, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And on one level, I love my dad for doing that. On another level, it was kind of like, okay, give me a gun and I'll shoot myself. You know, it's not the kind of, you know, uh, self-esteem message one wants from one's father. And then my mother hit me, and she was even worse. (laughs) Forget your feelings. Tim, you don't love Mary Lee. You don't even know what love is. You know, so I grew up with facial tics. (laughs) You know, my dad took me to a psychologist, you know. He wanted to know why his son had facial tics. Listen, we'll do anything to resolve our knowledge of living in the presence of a holy God. And that's religion. That's ceremonies, and that's rites. That's BSF, that's Moody. You go through these things, you're, you're a part of a study group. You, you listen to Christian radio, you, you know... Christian music, you get baptized, you do the Lord's Supper, you do the Lord's Supper every week. Eventually, maybe you convert to Rome, you know? But please give me something that's objective that I can touch, that I can trust in, so I do not have to deal with my heart. And that's who we are. If you read Calvin and Luther, the Reformers, They never stop warning. You read Luther's commentary on Galatians, and he just never stops warning against the temptation, the great temptation, to look to ceremonies and rites and rituals for faith. He never stops warning about it. You read Calvin on the the texts that we've been studying. He never stops saying, for instance, here... He never stops saying in his commentary how we must not think 
that the Apostle Paul, in writing about circumcision, is only speaking of ceremonial law. He's, in other words, he's constantly warning. The Apostle Paul is not just saying that we can't obey ceremonial law anymore. The Apostle Paul is saying that we can't look to any of our moralism. And yet, that's what we do. And our moralism is never about our heart. That's the nature of moralism. Moralism always fulfills certain tight requirements that we parse carefully and manage to convince ourselves we're keeping it. That's why I make fun of sustainability. Because it's one of the principal moralisms of the elite today. They have displaced God's law about sexuality, God's law about pornography, God's law about marriage and no-fault divorce, God's law against pride, against materialism. They have gotten rid of all God's big laws, all right? What is Madison Avenue? Well, Madison Avenue is uh, thou shalt covet, (laughs) you know? And then, because we still have to deal with our conscience, they give testimony to their bad conscience by, 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 by multiplying petty laws that they keep scrupulously. And you go onto Facebook and you can see people parading their morality, their, their, their rites, their religions, their ceremonies that they look to to pacify their conscience. Right? You all know this. Open Facebook anywhere and watch people parade their righteousness. And of course, Christians are some of the best at it. The Jews, despite the fact that Genesis 15 said that Abraham had it credited his righteousness when he believed in the Lord. It's real clear. It's very clear. They now were telling Gentiles that they needed to be circumcised. And so the Apostle Paul puts them in the dilemma. And he says, did Abraham have this gift, this blessing, when he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It should have been an easy question for them to answer because he was quoting the book of Genesis. And all of them knew when Abraham was circumcised, they all knew what it says in Genesis 17:24. Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. They all knew that that statement came after the statement that God credited it to him as righteousness. After. The Jewish rabbis said that he was circumcised 29 years after God credited it to him as righteousness. 29 years. 29 years. Every Jew knew that. Now then again, what is the question the Apostle Paul is asking? And what is the answer he gives? Verse 10, how then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? 
And then if we're dense, he answers, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And then the point is driven home by the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, never misses an opportunity to drive a point home. Verse 11, And he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And so listen, brothers and sisters, circumcision is the sign of faith. Circumcision is the sign of faith. Circumcision is the seal of the righteousness of faith. All right, you ready? Baptism is the sign of faith. Baptism is the seal of the righteousness of faith. This is the nature of the sacraments. Without faith, the sacraments are meaningless. Without faith, sacraments are hypocrisy. Okay? You all with me? The family relationship saves no one. Ethnicity saves no one. Actually, no one is woke. No one. Race saves no one. Why? Well, because ethnicity and race are only... Skin deep. Wouldn't it be wonderful for America to, have, to reclaim that phrase? Skin deep. What a wonderful phrase. Skin deep. That's not good. It means superficial. All right, moving on. Religious rites and ceremonies save no one. More specifically, circumcision saved no one. And today, baptism saves no one. The Lord's Supper saves no one. Church membership saves no one. Faith comes First, sacraments only have validity insofar as they sign and seal the righteousness is by faith, which is always his grace, which is always the gift of God. Only faith, grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone. It's the heart. Now, is this what you believe? Is your heart heart religion? You know, it's interesting. Um, some of you have been in my office, and I've had the privilege of showing you books that by hook and by crook I got through the years. And one of my favorite stories is that one day I walked into Mary Lee's house, and her mother came up to me and handed me a box of books. And they were old ratty things, you know. And I didn't really look at them. She said, here, 
And then she sort of went like this. She said, Dad, you know, well, she volunteered at a resale shop down on Front Street. And she had gone to the resale shop that day, she told me, and, and she'd found a box of books that Dad had brought in, unbeknownst to her. And she was so disgusted that he'd just gotten rid of a bunch of books in his library. And, and, and so she, she absconded with them. And she took them home and gave them to me, right? So years later, I actually looked at those books. Well, one of those books was the book Ecclesiastical History by a guy named, anybody remember? John Newton, not Eusebius, John Newton. But the subtitle is, and I always show this to people, and it's actually two, two or 300 years old, this book I have in my library, right? And the title, the subtitle is, Ecclesiastical history in which we discover how all, at all times and everywhere true religion has been persecuted and oppressed. I'm, I'm not, I don't have it exactly right. I should have looked it up and written it exactly. But I love reading that to people. Living faith, heart religion has always been persecuted by the church. Always. We want preachers who will protect us from the Holy Spirit. This is what your heart wants. You want your baptism and the Lord's Supper and the sacraments and the bells and smells and my soul among lions and your church membership and you'll want anything other than dealing with the holy God. But God is not our fool. And he will take nothing but our hearts. Nothing. He will not honor our rites and our ceremonies, and he's not going to listen to all our blather about, you know, we have an incarnational faith where if we get back to the Roman emphasis on the sacraments, then we will live out our sexuality better because we'll then have an embodied religion and the sacraments in Rome, and if we could go back to Aristotle and bleep, 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 bleep. This is all a discussion I was reading yesterday on a reform path pastor's leader's website. Everybody was just saying what we need is more philosophy, and in particular Aristotelian, and sacraments. And you know, I thought to myself, well, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says. Come on, laugh. It's ludicrous. The Apostle Paul says that he was given righteousness before he was circumcised. Now, does that mean we don't believe in sacraments? No. No. We love the sacraments because in the sacraments, God lowers himself to us and our fleshliness, confirming what his spirit has done in our hearts. And we need that because so often our hearts are misleading us. Satan is the evil one who never stops lying to us, accusing us. 
okay? We have to have fleshly things to reassure us that God has given us faith and that we're covered with Christ's righteousness. We love the sacraments in their place, and the sacraments are no replacement for heart religion. The sacraments are no replacement for the righteousness that comes by faith. Don't you trust in your skin color? Don't you trust in your family? Don't you trust in your ethnicity, your race? Don't you trust in your baptism? Look to it, but don't you trust in your baptism? Don't you trust in the Lord's Supper? Your trust is in Jesus. Your trust is in Christ alone. Because he has the only righteousness that's going to do you what you need to have done. And that is, when you stand before the Holy God, he says, who are you and why are you here? And you say, I don't know who I am. But I'm here because of Jesus. I mean, you know, the older you get, don't you realize more and more, you don't know yourself. I have these cocky young people come in the office with some problem. And I try to suggest something to them. And and they say, no, that's not true. And I say, well. (laughs) And then, you know what they always say? They always say, well, I know myself. And boy, if you want to get me laughing, you just tell me you know yourself. You know why you don't know yourself? Because you're proud. You wouldn't believe how pride blinds a man and woman to themselves, you know? It's interesting, when I was preparing to preach this morning and I was thinking of the text that people would trot out to say that actually circumcision does save you, all right, and that baptism saves you, the two principal ones are Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. Now listen to them. It says, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And I thought, isn't that fascinating, the order? If we believe in the plenary inspiration of Scripture, then we believe even the order of words is important. Notice it says one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then the classic one is 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21. The patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water, Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. And man, that is just trotted out constantly by Protestants today who say, look to your baptism, and baptism now saves you, and why don't you have a high view of the sacraments, right? And, and they, and they want to argue that baptism saves you. But the next words are this. Baptism not saves you, and the next word is what? The next word is not. Not what? Baptism now saves you. Not. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. Well, when they say baptism saves you, they're referring 
to the removal of dirt by water. That's what baptism is. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in his death, faith in his resurrection. And that is the baptism that will bring you safely to heaven. That is the ark of faith. Verse 12, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision. And so he's saying now about Abraham that he is a father to the Jews, they're of the circumcision. And then he says, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. In other words, Abraham is the father of Jews and Gentiles. That's what he's saying. He's the father of both. In other words, you're going to have to share your daddy. Because he's everybody's daddy, Abraham. Why? Because he had faith, and it was reckoned to him righteousness while he was uncircumcised. And then he got circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Through the righteousness of faith. This is very, very simple. What we need is the righteousness of faith. It's very, very simple. But faith has to have an object. And the object has to be Jesus. And this is a very sneaky thing because... If you talk to Roman Catholic priests, many of them would tell you that that's the sole object of the seven sacraments. But if you watch what happens in churches that are sacramentalists, it's very easy for you to turn your faith from Christ to your maintenance of your sacramental commitments. And this is easy for us too. How many mothers who believe in infant baptism end up having faith for the salvation of their child who's a devil from hell out in California because he was baptized. Because until he left home, they always gave him communion. Or if you know, you're an evangelical, it's because you prayed the sinner's prayer. I mean, there can be many things that we put in the place of heart religion. But that's not Jesus. That's not the righteousness of Jesus. And the men and women who go for the righteousness of Jesus as their hope are those who are completely despairing of themselves and know that nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash them. And so listen, be simple in your faith. Don't listen to people that are blathering about smells and bells and embodied religion and incarnational faith and sacraments and 
Thomism and Aristotelianism. The Apostle Paul was as sophisticated as Alvin Plantinga. (laughs) All right. And the Apostle Paul proved his brilliance and his faith by what? By making it simple for stupid people like me and you. And so inoculate yourself against rites and ceremonies. That's the relentless message of Luther and Calvin. They're just constantly warning against a superstitious faith that places its faith in ceremonies and rites instead of Jesus. Number two, if you're a Baptist who has simplistic thoughts about the difference between circumcision and baptism, wake up. Okay? Wake up. It's not as simple as you'd like it to be. Because neither circumcision nor baptism work externally. And you say, well, of course baptism doesn't work externally. That's why we delay it until you have faith. I say, okay, how about circumcision? You say, well, okay, but that's, you know what I'm going to say, right? That's Old Testament. (laughs) You know, that's Old Testament. Oh, I get it. So stupid Apostle Paul, you know, he's back in the Old Testament. Not living in victory. Listen, in the Old Testament, Abraham was saved the same way that I am saved today. And that is by putting his faith in God. That's how he was saved. And do you know something? God told Abraham to get circumcised. And Abraham had believed God, and it was credited to him as righteous. You're all with me. We've just been through this, okay? And it was 29 years later he was told to get circumcised. Everybody with me? You all with me now? Right? And so that's the way you Baptists want it, you know? Yes, he had faith, and then, He was circumcised, all right? Okay, now listen, I'm about to snooker you. And at the same time, God commanded Abraham to circumcise Isaac. (laughs) It's like, oh no. Well, back then it was the land and it was the skin and it was just Old Testament. Listen, it's not as simple as you want to make it out to be. Now, I'll grant you, it's not as simple as Presbyterians want to make it out to be either, okay? We do have a problem. I will grant you that there is, I think, a very small, but a chance that I'm wrong. (laughs) And and Calvin. and, And Luther. And John Knox. And Augustine. (laughs) And that John Piper really has no mistakes. And isn't that what we all want to know? That John Piper has no mistakes. I always tell people that I'm so glad John Piper's a credo-baptist, a Baptist, because otherwise he'd be perfect. Listen, circumcision is a faith 
It's a sign and seal of the covenant of faith. Baptism is a faith. It's a sign and seal of the covenant of faith. You know what Calvin says about baptism? He says the reason God had children baptized was because that was a reminder that those children would only live because of God's power. Because you couldn't argue that the children had been obedient, whereas it was clear that Abraham was. You disagree? God bless you. But maybe it was time for me to say what is deep in me. All right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sacraments that you do lower yourself to our need. We pray that you will help us to honor them and to love them, to practice them with faith, by faith. Father, keep us from trusting in any rite or ceremony to the displacement of faith in our blessed Redeemer who gave himself up for us. We pray it in his precious name. Amen.